Welcome to Heavy Networking, where we've been delivering the data packet pusher style since 2010. That means we're too stupid to quit. Uh, maybe someday we're going to stop, but today is not that day. This episode is a grab bag of topics delivered in our community roundtable format. We've brought in folks from our public Slack channel who wanted to talk about networking stuff that's on their mind. Slack channel, you say, why, yes, packetpushers.net slash Slack. Read the rules and sign up if you would like to join that Slack group. Today's grab bag of ideas will lay bare for all to see the soul of networkers the world over, and we're going to talk through these oversized packets with no fragmentation allowed of the evil bit on crammed right into your ears, and you can't stop it. It's happening. Oh, it's, it's happening right now. Joining us around the community roundtable, Justin Siebert-Grosha, a network engineering manager. Ken Salenza, the managing director at Network to Code. Nick Baraglio, a planning and architecture manager at Forwarding Plane. Michael Ship, a pre-sales engineer. And Steve Paluca, an IP architect at DQE Communications. That's a big crowd of folks. And uh, we'll see how far we get in our discussion today, considering all these humans that are here with their opinions. But uh, potential topics, the things that we are planning to talk about up on the virtual whiteboard include IPv6 only, firewall rule lifecycle management, keeping up as a manager, evaluating tech that's being hyped, white box switching, and smart nicks. And let's kick it off with the IPv6 only discussion. Uh, Nick, I'm going to turn this over to you. This is kind of bubbled up because of this Office of uh, Office of Management, whatever. There's a government memo, federal government U.S. memo that um, really talked a lot about IPv6 and IPv6 only with some marching orders. You want to summarize that for us? Yeah, so this uh, was originally released as a draft in March of 2020, and then signed, to, you know, to make it official on November 19th of 2020. And and essentially, what this is a is a set of recommendations, timelines, and deliverables for federal governments to migrate to not just dual stack IPv4, IPv6, because they tried that once already but straight to IPv6 only for 80% of their networks, network elements by 2025. So I read this preparing for this show, Nick, and the way I interpreted this, it wasn't a, gosh, it would be nice if we could all do the IPv6 only. It was like, you need a plan. This is happening. Here are some deadlines and things that we're expecting from you. Is that how you took it? Absolutely. And so anyone that has ever read, so they've done this before and the previous time was maybe 2008 or 2010. I don't even actually remember. But the way that that one was written, the way that the, the prior memo was written, left a lot of interpretation. And this one does not do that. And so as one can imagine, when there's a fair amount of interpretation to a document that is sort of encouraging you to do something that may be very laborious, people will try to find ways around it. Um, and there were a lot of ways around the, the prior memo. And again, this is all, this is my, you know, this is my interpretation of it. This is my opinion. And the way I took that is they figured out what was limited and what wasn't conducive to producing results in the last one. And they took all of that out. They provided very clear guidelines. They provided very clear deliverable dates. And they even gave some uh, recommendations of how to do it you know, from a very high level, right? You create a lab, find one place to create, a, you know, a pilot program, those kind of things. And, 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 and folks should remember, this is a department level thing. So it's not, I work at, you know, this tiny little sub-department inside of, say, the Department of Justice, like the FBI, right? This is Department of Justice level. Hmm. 
uh, and then it kind of trickles down from there. So IPv6 only was the thing that threw me, and this is, I'd love to get the opinion of this assembled cast here. When you hear that the federal government has marching orders for, by and large, to be heading towards IPv6 only networks, what what pops into your minds? The idea that the federal government generally cannot deliver. Um, I've been hearing <laughs> this, this for you know nearly two decades. IPv6 is coming. I just I'm I'm a, a skeptic that it will actually happen. I mean, how many deadlines come and go and with little well and what's what's the driver that makes you do this to on on the practical side i mean you know a paper from washington that says you must do it is one thing but you know you have day-to-day -day work to crank out the door and you know projects to fulfill and everything what's going to make them do it and that's what i see in the enterprise space too is people do ipv6 when it's required to make something happen not because it's something that's on a checklist to do so within the memo they actually address that. Um, they give a reason of why to do it, why, you know, why they want it done. And it's a smart reason. You know, it, it, I think most of us on this call probably started networking or were involved in networking when things like Apple Talk and IPX and, you know, DECnet and other things were running on the network. A lot of new network engineers don't have that experience, right? They're only familiar with IPv4 and NAT. I remember days when NAT wasn't a thing. The glory days, as I like to call them, because you know it's it is what it is. But you know the, the the largest driver for this is simplification of the network. So running dual stack is essentially running two protocols, ships in the night on the same network, just like we did with Apple Talk, just like we did with IPX, and turning off those old protocols was. I mean, we literally had a party when we turned off IPX. <laughs> At the place that I worked at, yeah, right? Apple we had, we went too. To the, that was so chatty. <laughs> we went to the bar afterwards, and so running dual stack is it's not it's functionally double the work, and so IPv6 is mature enough that we can do this, and I can tell you that we can do it because I have really already done it um, at a very large scale. So it's doable. And it's not a the technical issue, though, to me. It, it's more of it's a logistical. It's it's getting the actual doing it, right? Just spending the time and actually doing it. And, you know, again, I'll go back to, you know, I, I joined the, the Air Force in 2000. We were told about the U.S. Air, Air and Space Force. The U.S. Space and Air Force isn't going to come. Now, 20 years later, we we're just hearing about it coming back out. And that was supposed to be, I mean, I don't, I don't, my memory doesn't serve me correctly. But, it, you know, I think 2007 or 2009, we we're supposed to have the U.S. Space and Air Force or something. These mandates come and go, and I, I get it. And, and from a technology perspective, there's probably not too much reason not to do it. But from a you know a, a value, a business value from federal or enterprise space, it still just seems. I, I'm I, as I go work with various different customers, I'm still not seeing that push, and I'm just skeptical that you know a a, a memo is going to change that dramatically, for better or worse. And the, but the the. I, I want to push back a little bit on the the technical being free too. Yes, you're running dual stack, and there's a cost to that. But there's a cost to be an IPv6 only too, because there there's a hell of a lot of IPv4 in the world, and so you're going to have some kind of translation mechanism. Yeah, it's not horribly complicated, but it does have to be deployed. And in in my view, based on the 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 view I have of county and state agencies that we work with. Time is the is is a really limited factor in those IT departments, and so when you tell them, 
you're going to rip out IPv4 and go IPv6 only across the network, that's taking time away from other projects. And somebody somewhere mm. has to make those value judgments. And, you know, I question whether or not they're going to come down on the side of IPv6 only when they have to be made. Yeah, it's funny. Going back to the IPv, IPX and IP uh, coexistence days, it wasn't too hard to get to IPv4 only because we were shutting things off. And so that made it easier. IPv6, IPv4, it, it's a different sort of a problem because we, we really do need both. IPv4 was fixing things. It fixed the network broadcast problems at NetBuoy and IPX, SPX and Apple Talk and the difficulties of having, you know, servers that had to speak multiple protocols and multiple, like the network servers of the day would speak four different Ethernet encapsulations. They'd yeah. speak, you know, Snap and, you know, all the different Ethernet types back in the day. So IPv4 was fixing a problem, whereas IPv6 still isn't, there's nothing broken about IPv4 that is motivation enough. Like there are things that are wrong with IPv4. It's like, why haven't we adopted petrol cars? Uh, sorry, electric cars. And the answer is, well, you know, we should have electric cars and we know it's the right answer, but there's petrol cars everywhere. They're really easy and we know them and they're cheap and blah, blah, blah. We know we should get to electric cars and IPv6 is somewhat similar. But And so that, it's just that motivational factor is a key one. And the other one is, and I would be interested to hear other people's opinions, is I don't think a lot of people actually understand that you can run the IPv6 network completely as a, as a separate network. You don't have to go to all your routers and put IPv4 here and IPv6. You can actually just put IPv6 on some interfaces. You can have entirely different devices with IPv6. It's not a requirement to dual stack everything in your network. And it could be that you actually have a group of IPv6 connected devices on that IoT network over there, and it's all IPv6 to the internet, but the rest of your network's still IPv4. That's still a viable... Is that a design strategy you've seen or thought about? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's a couple of things I want to address. One, I think you're absolutely right. It's not a technology problem. The technical bits are largely solved. It's a time management, resource allocation, and cultural issue that needs to be addressed. The second thing that Ken brought up as, you know, there's, there's no business driver for it. The thing that a lot of people don't think about, the federal government is not a business. Like it yeah. doesn't produce profit. It isn't a business. It's a service. Again, but, so, but to the same point, what is the biggest uh, knock on federal governments? They don't get things done, right? There's no, generally speaking, there's no incentive for them to kind of continue forward, which is why they're not, generally speaking, at the bleeding edge of you know various technologies and so forth. Yeah, and I think a big part of that depends is on a, is a shortcut for other things. I mean, the government doesn't have a business driver, but it yeah, does yeah. have things it needs to do and get out the door. And so you are taking time away from those day-to-day -day things in order to do major projects like this. And somebody somewhere makes a decision, is this major project more important than other major projects? Is IPv6 win in that quarter? And I'll be interested to see how broadly it does win that that decision tree because it is competing for time resources with other projects. The thing about it is in the federal government, there is always you know, major projects, right? This is no different than any others. There's federal backbone projects, there's building new buildings, and there's a lot of oversight that enables that and makes it a little bit more efficient. 
I know Ken's probably going to laugh at that statement, but it is fairly accurate. And so I don't really see this as any other, I see this as actually easier, but you know, I come from a background of, you know, 17 years of doing IPv6 stuff. So I probably have a little bit different perspective. So what one point I want clarification on Nick or Ken, maybe you guys are closest to this, this memo, this document that came out, is this a mandate where this must happen? Cause that's how it read to me, but both of you, well, Ken especially was, was pretty skeptical. Like, yeah, whatever. It's a memo. Yeah, I don't I, care. I just, I mean, <laughs> like, I, I mean, everything from building bridges, tunnels, this, whatever it is. I, I just, I'm, I'm skeptical in general that anything that seems beyond their delivery capabilities, I'm skeptical will actually happen. And so if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, that's fine. Hang on, hang on. So the government's not delivering anything here. What it's doing is indicating that there's a social good about moving the technology stack forward to IPv6 and asking uh, federal bodies, which is only a very small part of the US government. The federal government in the US is only a very small, limited part of the national infrastructure. And it's only one country in the world, albeit a biggish one, not the biggest, but a biggish one. Um, and it also, um, there's no actual requirement for people like there is, say, in China or in Asia Pacific, where IP addresses ran out 10 years ago, there's a lot of companies out there who still have enough IPv4 addresses. And particularly in the uh, in the uh, Aaron region, uh, the app, not APNIC, Aaron, Aaron region, they uh, all have enough IPv4 addresses. So the telcos over there have IPv4. And there's a, a burgeoning market in second hands, particularly in the American market. They don't have a driver, right? So whereas if you're in Africa, they've got plenty of IPv4 addresses, still handing them out, actually. But if you're in Europe or if you're in Asia Pacific, you've got none. There's different motivations here. So what we're trying to do here with the government is the government's not saying, here's a service and you have to consume it. It's saying, here's a guideline. We're asking you to follow it as a social good or as a as a good for the whole of the, the country that we govern, right? It's, it's also important to note that just because the federal government has, the U.S. federal government has said, we're going to be 80% IPv6 only by 2025, that does not require anyone that isn't a federal entity to be IPv6 only. If I want to work with the federal government, it just means I need to be dual stacked, Yeah, right? It's, it's, a, it's a much lower bar and it's also 80%, right? So I can almost guarantee you, there will, I mean, there will have to be translation mechanisms, right? Just like with everything else. Like what is T-Mobile's one of the largest mobile IPv6 only networks in the world? They've got translation mechanisms. And, you know, it, it's just one of those things that we're going to have to do. I, I don't think it's a boil the ocean kind of thing. I really don't. Yeah. I think it's more of a, we're moving in this direction because it's the right direction. And like Greg said, it's a social good. Mm. If you want to come along with us, here's guidelines, NIST and, right and, requirements. And the other thing here is before we wrap this topic up, because I don't think we're moving ahead too quickly, is that the federal government in the US and the ITU globally mandated the use of X500, right? Mm. And also mandated uh, ISIS and the protocols around that, right? And they were mandated and governments used to have them and none of that took effect no matter what we did for those before, you know, the pre IP protocols, there's no guarantee that this actually means anything unless they choose to enforce it. And in the past, governments often issue these commands. It's like your boss says, Greg, I want you to do better. And you walk away going, 
Oh, boss. And <laughs> 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 go back to doing exactly what you were doing, right? And it's like, oh. If he doesn't come so, back and say, I'm docking you pay 20% until you do better, it's like, oh. That's ultimately, you more succinctly said what I was trying to say, Greg. That's pretty much my point. <laughs> I would simply add that you cannot unmake carrier grade nap. <laughs> mm. So that's a whole different, oh boy, that's a big topic we're not going to get into right now. Because, Ken, I want to talk about you know, the topic you brought for this roundtable, which is how should you manage the life cycle of a firewall rule, basically? So set this up for us, Ken. Yeah, great. I want to set the stage, but I work with a, a lot of uh, customers you know, in, in the from the perspective of network automation. So I, I do have a little bit of a slant on that, like how to solve this via network via automation. <clears throat> but nonetheless, I see the same problems for my entire career across all, nearly all customers, which is the network or security team is required to take on the entire kind of data burden of all firewall rules, right? Mm -hmm. So what we generally see is the systems and applications teams throw over the fence, I need access to, uh, you know, widget co, right? And so widget app, right? And they don't provide any documentation. They don't, you know, to say which ports. <laughs> yeah. No My one favorite has an question idea is always, like, yeah, yeah, what ports do you need? Huh? We don't, we have no yeah. idea. Yeah, great. <laughs> and they send you a document. It's like, well, which features are you using? Which in this, you know, I don't know. You should know that, right? And um, I, I, the underlying theme here is the, the, the cultural considerations that organizations need to have to actually uh, increase their security posture, right? They talk about you know zero uh, zero trust environments, right? Um, but the reality is, is most organizations can't deliver it because the sheer amount of data and then just the the centralized group, meaning the security team, to actually manage all that. So what generally happens is, like I said, so request comes in, the it gets put into an ITSM ticket, and there's no tracking of that rule. You know, the, the rule gets sorry, the rule gets deployed, and there's no tracking of that rule from there on out. Every six months or a year, the audit team comes in and there's really no answer, right? They just say, we track it in the ITSM tool. That's it. And that data is kind of lost forever, right? So as I work with customers, I kind of see like four different kind of problems slash solutions here, right? A lot of customers are kind of looking at like using their ITSM and starting to expose the like the five, the traditional five tuple to their customers. And this is great because it can, you know, if you could build the automated pipeline, you can have like more normalized configurations, more standardized, not, you know, Ethan has, you know, he, he uses dashes and Greg uses uh, underscores, right? And you can kind of ensure that normalization happens uh, and, and you could kind of track that. The cultural consideration there is, is largely for the, the end user needs to be educated on their process, which is, is obviously a, an issue, right? They don't know the ports to begin with, which is why we had the problems to begin with, which is why we, the security engineers got all these Excel spreadsheets with, on normalized data, essentially. What is good though, is if you can get to that point, you can kind of like reverse you know, reverse the uh, the table or flip the table a bit in enforcing the customer to kind of call you and say, help me fill out this form and help educate me along the way, right? Don't just throw over the Excel document over the fence and say, you deal with it. You're trying, you're, it sounds like you're arguing for like a joint custodianship of the rules, get the person who needs the rules and the security posture established more engaged in the process. That's really it. That's the crux of, of what, what I see as the, the overarching issue is that if ownership is fully owned by the network and security teams, they, they can't possibly manage you know, thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of rules is not unheard of through these organizations. So is it joint responsibility that you're really arguing for? Or as in, you know, once it's set up, 
um, both the person who needs and the people that are implementing share responsibility? Or is it really, you kind of want to move responsibility? We'll deliver whatever you ask for, but it's really on you. Well, no, I, I do think it's, I mean, it, fundamentally, I guess the technical ownership has to come from the network and security team, right? So they always own the actual implementation, the expression of the, of the, the data and the ownership of saying, yes, I, this is actual business critical data that, or business critical communication that needs to happen. So, yeah, I, I believe there should be, I, I do believe it, it's not just, you know, pushing the responsibilities back on the requester. Totally. But I've been in multiple organizations where I've had the app team and the firewall team. I said, who owns the rule? And they both did, you know, and you can't see me on, on video, but they both pointed at each other and said, no, they own it. You know, and there was never the two had spoken to even ask the simple question. And by and large, I believe that most enterprises are kind of operating in this manner. Okay, I like the, this idea of shared ownership. I only lived in the enterprise world for a few years, so I have minimal uh, experience with the, the firewalls problem. But back in my last company, when I was doing the firewall for their enterprise environment, the biggest problem that we ran into was the rules that we did not know what they were doing or why they were still there. Uh, so shared ownership kind of leads me to down the path of auditing the rules, you know, every six months, every, every year, the, you know, you ping the, the rule owner and say, is this rule still necessary? So yeah. it's a good way to help clean up the rules over time. So I got to this point in a previous, previous uh, company I was with, and it was a very small, like, you know, kind of environment, but we, I was given the authority to sit there and say, there must be, you know, kind of ownership associated every three months. And so I built the, the automated process to kind of pull in and then reaffirm, you know, who, who owned the rules. And I would send every three months, I would send them an email and say, you, do you still own these rules? And I promptly get zero responses. Two weeks later, I send them another email, promptly get zero responses. Then a week later, I would say, we're going to disable the rules next month. Whoa, 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 whoa. Right? Once there's ownership, <laughs> oh, actually, uh, you know, either, okay, I, yes, I still own that rule. Or more likely, hey, I actually moved to organizations. It's no longer me. It's this group or whatever the case may be, right? And that actually helped keep it up. Now, it was a small enough environment where it was, you, you know, doable for, for one person to kind of manage this every few months. But it is possible. Well, you, you threatened to bring the hammer down, the nuclear option. You know, that's that, that's it. what it was. I, I had a data center manager I worked for, and he was a neat freak. If there was a cable out of place, did not follow spec of how you were supposed to put a cable in, because someone was doing a lab and they had a temporary patch or something. Whose is this? If no one stood up, he'd go in and he wouldn't unplug the cable. He would <laughs> cut the cable with wire cutters to prove his point that he wanted things just so, the nuclear option. And sometimes that's what you got to threaten with to get people to take the responsibility that they'll ignore if there's no consequence for not doing so. And, and what's often... What's often helpful is they have the the security, you know, like uh, the I, coming from the front of security. We can't secure our perimeter. We can't secure our environment without this, right? And so you actually have some. You can actually you have some actual organizational teeth here. We can actually put into something a bit here. The other thing I often hear from many customers, like we wanted to define what is a good rule, what's a compliant rule, right? But they're often, you know, it's 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 very like a, it's very much a nebulous term. But if they can write it down, if, if the customer given you know, enterprise can write down what they mean, you can programmatically define what that is. Meaning a, a good rule is often, you know, the things we often hear is like from PCI to not PCI is, is no-go. Um, you know, we, anything that's less than, you know, only slash 32 is talking to each other, something like that, or, you know, very one scope, not just open up slash 16s or something to that effect. So, so I have a question about um, 
real structure that I think is relevant here. So in the past, the, the way that I've done, you know, edge prote border protection is you have a set of static rules that are agreed upon that never change, right? So your base inbound outbound filtering, you know, it never, it never gets changed unless there's a huge process around it. Yeah, and then you, you have the notion of bunch of SNMP servers, and then you need yeah, to have I mean, a new place, and so you have to add that to the base. But that's it. Right, yeah. right. I mean, yeah. you have the things that you're supposed to block at a, at a network edge, right? It's pretty well defined. You can go do a Google search and find it, and it's almost always the same. Then you have the notion of ephemeral rules, and so we had a similar problem where ephemeral rules were sort of fast and loose created and then abandoned, and so instead of assigning ownership to them what was done was you know this is this is not an enterprise environment right so it's it's a probably a different perspective but the ephemeral rule stops seeing traffic you know and, and first we did this with flow data and then we did it with um, basically counters yep it would disable the rule automatically hmm. it would just yes, stop but this breaks down instantly the moment you have a traditional enterprise dr right situation where the backup data center gets zero traffic unless there's a problem and so every one of these things you know like you know which rules aren't being used nobody wants to touch them because well that could be the dr well you know uh new york can be the backup for la in this application but la can be the backup for new york and the other you know so even that falls pretty quickly into uh into actually being able to disable it well isn't that more of a failure of not testing your dr environment often enough Absolutely, you know. <laughs> nonetheless, and also not labeling your rules. <laughs> oh no, this is oh no. There's absolutely a a giant failure to kind of you know track and maintain them. And but you know without kind of enforced right you know uh, trust but verify right. Unless you're you're verifying, there's no two people who are going to put the same description on a switchboard interface. Never mind a firewall rule with all the same address objects, service objects, rule names, descriptions of the ITSM ticket, et cetera, et cetera. It just will not happen, right? The moment you get a new person in, they're going to do something different. Again, Ethan uses dashes and Greg uses underscores. And now you can't really match them up you know, programmatically and everything just falls apart. I worked at a large organization that was in the process of solving this problem many years ago. And the cleanup involved with it was, was ugly. So we'll put that on the side. <laughs> but the going forward process, I did really like, and I, I know a lot of people won't because it was it was driven by a, you know, a compliance and an ITIL <laughs> type process. But what they did was they they broke down the, they created a formal process along with custom software documentation for it. So when your app team needed to open firewall rules across the, the network, they submitted a request. The first part of that request was a technical evaluation where the network security engineers worked with the app engineers to figure out how does the damn thing actually work and what's the rule actually need to be. Once the technical stuff was worked out that it was actually something that could be done and, and should be done technically, then it went over to the policy group who looked at you know all of the policies and, and legal things that are required for the organization and do we meet that criteria? Then once it was approved, it was implemented. And it was implemented with a key code ID. That's the ID of the rule. They, they sometimes were quote unquote permanent rules that are just reviewed in this normal cycle of the policy that they're under. Or they were time-based rules because it was a time-based thing. 
now cleaning up the existing stuff to get into that format was was ugly and difficult but going forward that was a it was a wonderful system to work in it's interesting those processes all reflect the failures of the systems that we had in that era if that makes sense so um, we couldn't trust vendors to produce a reliable product, so we would always have a proof of concept. And the products were so hard to use that we actually had to have time to understand them. And because the products were, didn't work very well, and because they weren't hard to, and they were hard to use, we had to have a policy board to make sure they were being used the way that they were supposed to be. So all those processes grew out of, like ITIL grew out of the the massive failure of the microcomputers era, right? Where the idea was is that you bought a microcomputer and you treated it like a um, a factory setup. You buy it, you deploy it, and then it sits there for 20 years and does its thing. And that's literally how accounting systems were built in the 1980s. Companies would go out, they would take a five-year or a 10-year lease or loan to cover the purchase of the computer system. It would be deployed and then it would never be touched for the next 10 years, literally, like a machine in a factory, like a you know, like a press that bends metal. And all those processes grew out of that era. And they're a reflection of the fact that technology was so fragile and so horrible that we put these controls in to make them to control it all. And I, I think the challenge that we have as we go forward is we have to reflect that things are different now. Software defined for all of its ills and it's the, the marketing and, the, and stuff. And the fact that vendors have finally realized that if they're going to compete with public cloud products or managed services, their products have to work out of the box. None of this, we're seeing all of the complex features disappear. Like all of that stuff about MPLS we used to argue about, all those tricksy little features and, and crunkly little corners, they're all going away. Is that reasonable to say that there's a transition going on underneath and that what we've done before is no longer viable going forward? So I think there's there's truth to that. There's certainly, there's a lot, there, there's so much more. There's, you know, the idea of, you know, even as Nick said, like ephemeral, you know, our scalable infrastructure that has changing IPs, objects, et cetera. It's a very complex kind of issue. Even what defines an application is just, it's no longer the same. So some things will get easier. Other things will just replace it and be more complex. Overall, I think everyone's crunching down on their security posture. And again, if you go back in where historically the mushy innards was fine, right? You could have just protect your perimeter and don't worry about anything internally. Many organizations are protecting everything in between, and that is your your data problem goes up dramatically. And ultimately, I think that's the other thing they're, they're really hone in on is fundamentally it's a data issue. It's a source of truth issue. The intended state is kind of not represented well anywhere. Um, and my my actual, my pancea is what I call like application dictionary. I've been using this term for probably a decade. But the idea is really what organizations actually want to do is kind of express their connectivity in terms of business applications. I want to be able to speak speak to the uh, widget app, right? And but they can't do so because it they need the the firewall needs to understand it in terms of five tuples essentially. And the idea is if you can move that logic out and move the data out to express between applications and then their interrelationships, you could assign ownerships to those applications in, in relationships and let the outcome be Sorry, the artifact become the configuration, right? So your application dictionary that you're describing here, Ken, is this in the representative structured data? Correct, absolutely, yeah. And and if you think about if you could on you know one table, you know, 
very simply. It's not that accurate, but one table you could define your application, and the other table you could define your relationships between those applications. And if, you would have to do things like New York Office is an application, and that's speaking to widget app, right? Or speaking to the SaaS service or Salesforce. If you could define everything as applications, when the requester comes to the table, they can sit there and say, oh, I, I need to, I want, this is the application I want to speak to. And that could be, you know, standard infrastructure services like DNS, LDAP, et cetera, or more specific, you know, CRM apps, et cetera. But ultimately, along that process, what you should be able to do is assign ownership. Who owns this application? Is yeah. this application allowed, like, is this application, I own the DNS application, anyone's allowed to use my application, or do you need to come to me for requests, or who's the approval authority? So, so the application structured data as it is represented and the relationships that are represented in there comes with metadata like ownership and so on. Now I've got this object that I can run automation tooling against, and so when a new request comes in or I need to tweak things, I tweak the structured data and I can roll that change out, whatever it might be. Absolutely. In, in the end, I mean, I think firewall rules are so large, it's like you're, you're never going to be able to really consume them anyway. Ideally, it's just an artifact. It's a build artifact of the configuration. And it's, you know, it just looks like, you know, AWS, like IDs, right? Like you, when you ever look at security rules, everything's stitched together with some unique ID. It's kind of hard to follow, but it makes sense from their perspective, hmm. right, in, in maintaining that data. Okay, that is an interesting idea, Ken. Maybe uh, maybe we got to circle back around and drill into that more specifically <laughs> on a different show because that's that's pretty intriguing. Because I've done the same thing. I think all of us have done. The owner has no idea what the port numbers are, what the relationships are supposed to be. So we start digging through documentation, whatever we can find, build up a rule set, and then test and hope things work. The other complication in that though is firewall rules are once and done. So the order that they get deployed in is important too. So your simple dictionary gets that additional layer of complication thrown on top of it. Yeah. Ten to, ten, ten to more layers to add to it, too. I'm, I'm simplifying it for the purposes of this conversation. But yeah, it's a very complex problem. Let's move on to the career part of our discussion here in the community roundtable. Uh, Justin, you brought this one to the table, the idea of keeping up as a manager. How do you maintain technical sharpness as a manager? So let's just set up what's on your mind. Yeah, so um, at my organization, we you know we pro we try and promote from within. So you know, I've shifted from you know gone from engineer, senior engineer, tech lead, you know, people manager, and we don't really replace uh, responsibilities. It's more like additional responsibilities. So even if you're a technical manager like I am, how do you still maintain that sharpness? These days, I almost never actually sit in the CLI anymore, which is you know a good thing and a bad thing depending on your point of view, but. You still want to, especially as a technical manager, you still want to be able to you know, guide your team and what to do if they're not sure, uh, even if you're you know, delegating responsibilities. But yeah, I like, to, I like the time to really keep my training up or really get on the CLI like I'd like to. So I've been in this situation myself at uh, you know, three different companies where it's like, oh, dude, you want more money? Um, we desperately want to keep you. The only thing we can do is make you a manager. Yay, now you can get paid more. But then I found that the job role was a very different thing. So the question I'll pitch back to the group, because it's a question I've never fully answered to my own satisfaction, but it's this. When I'm in that managerial role, Justin, when you're in that managerial role, how sharp do we actually need to be? I mean, Justin, you put a qualifier on it. You still kind of want to be able to guide the team. But do, do you, where, the, where do you draw the line? Where are the limits there? Some of you guys have feedback? It depends on the organization, you know. Every organization I'm in, the, I've been in over the last 30 years, the, the technical expertise of the managers has varied a lot. 
you know, the current organization I'm in, the tech, the, the managers are keyboard junkies with everybody else. And they're very technical in addition to managing the people and the money, which is at the end of the day, in my view, where the managers live, you know, the people and the money. But other organizations, it's not as required. And it depends on the size of your team and the work that needs to be done and how many how you organize doing it. Well, Steve, let me flip the question around from your perspective then. As you look at a manager, it just in you in the organization you're with, you say they're pretty technical, but how technical do you actually need those folks to be? I don't I wouldn't say it's a requirement for the manager part, but it's part of the culture of this company that that managers are hands-on and know the work. And and part of that's the fact that it's a small company. It's you know less than a hundred employees. So uh, that keeps you, you know, close to the where the rubber meets the road and whatever your team is doing. Maybe it's more of a staffing issue then, because you know, in my my position, I am the senior engineer or senior engineer, and I I can solve most of the issues even if I don't have to. Um, so you know, my team comes to me with the really hard problems that they don't know how to deal with. But maybe so, maybe it's a staffing issue where I need to find a senior engineer to cover those duties while I focus on the manager side. So I'll, let me follow up on that, Justin. Ken, you be quiet. <laughs> Poor Ken, he's tried to break in three times now. But okay, but Justin, just uh, so for me, I had two problems um, that are very parallel to what you're describing. I was in the same kind of a role, manager, um, other engineers working for me as far as the org tree was concerned, but yet the buck stopped with me when it came to, you know, making things go. I was, still, I was the senior exactly. engineer who, who needed to have the answers. I also struggled with delegation, though. It was very difficult for me because I'm like a control freak. And I just couldn't <laughs> couldn't just turn the reins over to someone else and let them do their job sometimes. So I stuck myself in the middle of things too often. Another comment from me is where I found the time to be as sharp as I needed to be was after hours, which is not a great answer. I do not recommend that at all. But that is what I did for years. Okay, Ken, I'm shutting up now. No, no, no. I was going to say, like, I think there's some managers that can be great doing anything. They can manage, you know, a group of lawyers or they can manage IT networking engineers. I think for the rest of us, you know, including myself, we you know, need to have some kind of technical understanding of what they're managing in order to provide guidance. I've recently kind of, you know, engaged in a project where I'm a bit out of my element. I've realized very distinctly how, how much that hinders my ability to kind of manage, right, to not be able to see what the issues are kind of coming, you know, down, down, down the pipe. But ultimately I, I do think that weighs in a, a bit. Right. And so if, if, I don't know, I'm, I'm making up numbers here, but if most people are probably similar to me, not just natural, great managers who can just not understand, you can appropriately resonate with many people and lead without knowing, while having that intricate knowledge, then, then great. But I think most people, like I said, will be, be with me. And so I, I do think that some amount of time needs to be, allocated to you know keep up with with the technology essentially i'm going to give an unpopular opinion here because i've been in that position where you're the senior engineer slash architect but you also have direct reports and you're responsible for the hr and the budget and all the other things and it does a couple of things it's a recipe for burnout yes like it is the most certain recipe for burnout because you like you need to keep up technically and so you're doing things like ethan did like i did which is do it at home on your own time which doesn't scale especially if you have a family the other thing is it comes down to in my opinion a question of trust so 
my opinion is that a manager should have a very high level understanding of the whatever the product or procedure or services that their team is doing, but they don't need to have the technical chops. You need to trust your people. They will do the right thing and that they are the experts. And your job is to basically clear the path for them to do their job and to deal with any external things, HR stuff, problem customers that want to talk to the manager, whatever, right? And get that out of their way so they can keep producing. I don't think having a deep technical knowledge is necessarily important for an actual manager. Again, it all, you know, my, my moniker on the internet is it depends, right? So it depends network if you want to look me up. But I've seen many organizations just kind of crippled by that where there is supreme agreement that their experts are experts and they're not, right? I've worked with groups and center and I didn't understand why the managers didn't understand what that their, their engineers weren't, you know, quality, let's say, and they just couldn't tell. And so there was no, they couldn't discern between one versus the other. So yes, when you do have a, a t- everyone's a great manager when you have a team of rock stars, right? Everyone is, is awesome, right? You don't need to know it. Great. But that's not the reality in most situations, 90 plus percent, right? So that to me is the the bulk of that to me. Again, I, I have no data to back this up, but that's the lion's share that I'm looking that I, I believe needs to be solved. You need to have a good understanding. Otherwise, you can't tell what's garbage and what's not. Yeah, I, I, I want to amplify that a little bit too, because you have to be technical enough as a manager to know where the where the pits and the traps are. I mean, how many people, how many times in your career have you been told to do something that's blatantly and totally stupid, technically? <laughs> and the manager just says, just do it, just do it. <laughs> you know? So, you know, you need to you need to have enough of a, a grasp of of what your team's doing so that you're gonna avoid those those major things and and push back against doing the you know the blatantly stupid. Um, yeah, I have no, I'm not trying to say that the, the manager shouldn't understand, you know, they have to have a reasonable understanding of the technology or the whatever it is that they're, you know, that they're managing the team of, right? They, they should know a good idea and a bad idea. I would not expect that they would be able to sit down and configure multi-topology ISIS across absolutely. three different platforms, right? That's too much. Like they don't, they should have a team that does that. But again, I come, I'm going to start like I always do with a utopian idea (laughs) and then carve it away to reality. I think the challenge here is that most of us work in office environments, but the work that we deliver is much more in this context. Anyway, I'm going to use a metaphor of a medical situation in a hospital. The whole situation exists so that doctors don't do the wrong type of work, right? So doctors don't do temperature and changing beds and, you know, signing in and signing out. They don't do the organization just because they're the most senior technologist in the room. They're not also checking that the meals in the canteen are hot or that the nurses, they're not nurse managers. That's what, you know what I'm saying? And the challenges for technology is that most IT management or IT executives come up from a sort of a world where it's it's about, you know, if we got rid of all the managers and just got the engineers to do all the paperwork, then that would save money, right? And in fact, what it does is it's counterproductive because you're taking your doctors away from the patients, away from the patient care. What you want 
is more support people. You want, now, when I first started in IT 30 years ago, I used to have a team secretary and her job was to make sure that my phone was ready, that all of the paperwork I needed to do my job, she would chase me down for timesheets. She would whatever, right? All that type of stuff. And it was incredibly efficient for us to do that and work super duper well. But over the years, it's become like, oh, well, what we'll do is we'll get the engineer to fill out his timesheets. We'll get him to submit his timesheets. We'll get the engineer to submit his expenses. We'll get the engineer to make the request for training. We'll get the engineer, right? There's this whole, and it's taking your medical practitioner away from the purpose that they exist. And modern businesses don't see technology work in that mode. And that is the problem. You are literally the one-of-a-kind, unique professional that has this laser-like focus. And that, weirdly, this is where DevOps comes from and cloud professionals come from because they are focused on a very, very small niche. They don't have very good skills at lodging timesheets or whatever, right? And they have all these tools to support them. They have Trello and Atlassian and they futz about tool this and, you know, what code editor I'm doing. And that's all a replacement for getting me back on task instead of wasting four to six hours a day sitting in a meeting discussing the color of cables or the shape of a firewall rule or whether, you know, whatever it is. Is that agreeable? I can understand that point very well. Um, I my last job as the architect, I would have to spend three to four hours at a time building a PO with sort of systems, whether I could just send them a spreadsheet, it would have saved me so much time. I think a lot of the, the IT people in the world that have migrated to the word manager come from the IT background. We've always had this mentality that we take on more responsibility, we get the title, right? As you said, if you want to manage you get more money. So our managers that were never actually brought up from a traditional business style management, they're IT people that have morphed their skills and somewhat badly, I would say. I mean, I agree. I, I do fundamentally agree. And, you know, partly the same, same thing, right? I'm in management now, but I came up through technical without traditional kind of experience. But it, it does seem like most companies, most, uh, sorry, most fields are like that, right? Like you don't just become out of college at 20 years old and you're a manager, right? So you're going through doing the data entry, whatever the, the different aspects are and growing up through it. And, and, and I presumably by osmosis understanding about management. Yeah, I think one of the, one of the things I encountered earlier in my career in the, you know, in the nineties and the early two thousands was, you know, being promoted to a manager was not something I, I learned in that period that I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be a technologist. I didn't want to deal with people and money. <laughs> you know, I want to deal with technology. At the time, you know, I reported to the chief financial officer of, you know, of, of all things. So I learned a lot about, <laughs> about managing money. But one of the great things that I noticed in the last 10 years is the the change in at least in the United States here where of this tech lead role, which you know I've been lucky enough then to be able to do the last couple of jobs and to separate technical leads from management uh, so that there is that path. You don't have to be a manager to get the quote unquote the raise or the money. 
Now, Justin, maybe one of the answers to your question, how do you maintain technical sharpness as a manager, could be in the topic Steve brought, which is how do we respond to management? How do we inform them about what items that are really hot in tech news are actually going to be helpful and useful? That is, you would be informed by the people on your team letting you know, hey, thus and such is a new thing that we could use. So, Steve, maybe uh, pitch that to us and what's on your mind. Well, you know, I think most of us have been in this business for a long time. So, you know, come, I'm expert in things we don't use anymore, you know, from the, from the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. So one of the things, if you want to stay employed in technology, you have to do is keep up with what's happening in technology and what's relevant. And so, therefore, one of the skills you need to do is figure out what's applicable and what's not applicable, especially as we get more and more diverse and complex in the in the world. You have to figure out where these things apply and do they apply to your business or are you going to go down the wrong rabbit hole? So for me, the, the biggest challenge as an engineer was a manager getting taken out to lunch, their quarterly meeting with the local rep and the local reps now pushing something, whatever the trendiest thing that the, the vendor wants to push to bolster sales for that quarter. And then getting questioned about, all right, they want us to buy, you know, this switch because it supports this management platform. And, you know, should we, should we get into that and trying to answer that stuff? And sometimes they'd be really high on it. They'd be just super like, oh, this sounds like a great thing. And you're listening to it going, no, no, it's a trend. It's going to be gone in two years and we'll be stuck with this turd that the vendor's not doing anything with anymore until we can get rid of it. I don't want to get into it. For me, if I had credibility with the managers, that tended to go a long way. And so it came back to not being one of these people as on the engineering staff that always said no one was skeptical and angry all the time and bitter about all the things that technology had done to me over the years, but being able in a reasonable way to say, yeah, it might do this and it might do that, but it's going to cost a lot of money. We're going to get stuck with it. Let's just stick down with the path that we've got. It keeps our options open and then presenting why, if we don't go down some strange thing the vendor was pitching, go down that that odd road, life would be better. If I could present things in that way, I found that management was pretty pretty open to that. They kind of got it because you were presenting it in a in a business oriented way, like a risk assessment way almost. Part of the issue is knowing the difference because you you have that one thing you mentioned, Ethan, where you know it's it's a bad idea for for your environment in whatever the technology is. But the, the other possibility is I'm desperately clinging to a technology that is going to be gone in five years. I mean, I could be that guy that I remember that with you know, frame relay was the bee's knees. And we're we're not giving <laughs> well, that up. Take it, it, it out of my vines. Take it, it out of my vines. Dead figures. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so the trick for the technologist is figuring out which one you are. And you can be in the right one. Mm. If you go back to your point, though, I, I think two things. One is, as I deal with customers, what you describe to me is, is often some of the most successful engagements is where you have that technical person that gets things and they have the ear of the executive sponsor. Yeah. That tandem works very well. Again, bias, you know, confirmation bias for sure. The second thing, though, is, is as I have moved into management, I, I've kind of definitely realized, you know, how to present the the story better to the larger group. I think engineers by and large neglect that that skill set. I, I recently on, on on the packet pushers Slack, I had this conversation, which is 
know, it's not just that management is dumb or this or that. Like you have to explain it to them in terms, and and that generally speaking means PowerPoints and pictures and data like that. that not thing. not speaking overly technically. One of my go-to phrases over the years has been, "We don't have that problem." That is, here's a technology that's been pitched to you. It doesn't actually do anything for us. We don't have that problem. That would grab people's ears pretty, pretty, pretty well. Absolutely. And, and ultimately, I think in life with anything, you, you just have to figure out how to align incentives with whomever, right? And so if it's your manager and your, your significant other, whatever the case may be, it's always about aligning incentives. And so how, how do you do that with, with your manager to kind of talk about that latest tech stack and, you know, get, get your way essentially? I guess the flip side of this conversation, Steve, since you know, since you uh, brought this up, is sometimes there's new stuff that comes along that's actually pretty intriguing, and so you're actually presenting to management. You know, it'd be pretty cool if we could do this because it gives us these benefits. And there's always a, a but, and the but is, but it's going to cost us, you know, a certain amount of money. And so then being confident that you're presenting a technical solution that the business will benefit from, in the context of I don't know, an ROI or a cost benefit analysis, something like that. Right. Recognizing when it's time to change, you know, yeah. the, the way you end your career in technology is by tooth and nail hanging on to something that's changing. And then you're unemployable in five years because you didn't learn what happened or, or what the, what the next thing is. So it's a dicey thing you have to, you have to do here. You have to figure out which is the real the real deal and what's really going to make a difference in not only your environment, but your long-term future too. Sometimes the best thing for the company you're in and the environment is not necessarily the best for your career. And, and sometimes it can also be... sticking with the old technology is the best thing for your career, like all those COBOL programmers. <laughs> yeah. But, well, but... you're two, you're 2000. They really cashed in, baby. <laughs> There's an important thing to note here too. You can be in a stage of your life where doing the same thing is the right thing. So if you're in a situation where your personal life is full of challenges, health problems, marital problems, or maybe you're exhausted, or maybe you're emotionally tired, or you're dealing with some sort of, you know, there's a time to say, I can put my career on hold and I'm just going to do this for a year or two longer. I know I should move and, but don't feel guilty about that. Don't feel that you're getting behind the career because uh, one of the things that I advise people, a number of people do ask me for career advice. And one of the things that I say to people a lot is take time for a break. And I would suggest to many people who are in the industry today, you are probably going to be working until you are 70 or even longer. And it is not unreasonable for you to think about taking retirement breaks. So in my career, I took a break at 22. I got took two years off and spent a lot of time drinking and traveling around the world, um, which was great. And then came back and picked up my career. I did it again in, um, in my mid thirties, I took some time off and then turned, returned back into a career. And then again, back in 2015, I took six months away and that's how packet pushes came about. So at some time in the future, I am planning another mini retirement where I stop for six months to a year Go and take a break, get away from the industry, and then come back for the last 10 years of working to 70. So I agree with it. So, so the point I'm trying to make is, yeah, you can be in a situation where sticking with the technology that you know is obsolete might be the right thing to do for your personal situation, but not your professional. But don't panic because the great thing about technology is you don't ever lose. And in fact, I, I would recommend to you to take a break every now and then and just say, 
and it's going to take a year here to slow down. This uh, this Banyan Vines technology is pretty good, and you know I'll catch up when the time comes. Is that reasonable? I think that's great advice. Well, I think that I think that's dangerous advice. At least my experience in the U.S. employment market, yeah. uh, hiring managers hate unemployed people. It, it is it is a truth that I've seen again and again and again. That is cultural, Steve. Though, but that is if they see a gap in employment. Is that what you're getting at? Not, not only a gap in employment, but if they have two candidates in front of them, one's currently working and one's unemployed and they're roughly equal, they'll hire the employed guy every time. I didn't say it was without problems, but... <laughs> yeah, know, it's what, a risk that yeah. I want to point out in, in your model there. You know, you have yeah, a, a two-year gap of employment on, and you're going you're gonna to have to overcome that by being that much better than the other candidates in the jobs you are applying for. The truth, so it's, in the not, US. it's not insurmountable. You know, yeah, you yeah. Could, this you could is write, a US you took thing. six months off to go and care for your grandmother, or you, you know, you went to an overseas university. Women can't be... get employed again after having been pregnant and taken a couple of years off to take care of the kid. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is well, I think I, again, very I don't disagree with thing. you. I think that's the way it was. I think increasingly going forward, that's changing. This, uh, and I agree with you that certainly in my career, I had challenges coming back to work. Don't disagree, but I also want people not to feel like they have to murder themselves to stay in a job because that's also bad, right? The notion of a sabbatical, I think, is culturally becoming more accepted. People write about doing it in the American market, and it's maybe even trendy where that's a thing. You know, years away, I don't know. Months away, I, I wouldn't say it's commonplace, but it's becoming more known and more accepted. And it would be so easier I was just gonna today say, than it is than it was before because there's a shortage of tech workers. So you know, it it makes it depending on your specific technical skills, it's to accomplish that. And and you're right, months months is is different than years. But I just say you have to take that into consideration. And also, these jobs again culturally in the United States, people put very specific technical skills in their technical experiences too. And you know, they'll throw you out. You know, you're the Banyan Vines guy. Sure, you know everything about networking, but you are the Banyan Vines guy. So I'm not gonna hire you for IP. All right, one last topic that we're gonna hit today. Uh, we're gonna move from career into hardware a little bit. And uh Michael, who is uh been <laughs> he's been participating in this show. In the middle of the night uh, in Australia has stayed up extremely late to have this conversation with us, and we want to talk smart nicks for a while. It's a topic that's come up an awful lot on Packet Pushers, the Packet Pushers podcast network lately. Uh, Michael actually works for a maker of smart nicks and uh, has some opinions and some thoughts. So, uh, Michael, why don't you set up this topic for us? So, with smart nicks, I guess it's it's sort of like the new new buzzword. It's Reinventing something that we already have, but delivering more, hopefully not much more money or the same price. Now, I hear from a lot of different potential customers who are talking about, oh, we've heard about these smart nicks. I really, really think we have a need for this. And you sort of pull them aside a bit and go, okay, well, what are you envisaging here? What kind of need do you think you have? Well, they're, they're fast, right? Okay, yeah, sure, but so is a normal nick. Right? And you, you lead them down this little garden path and you find out they just want smartness because it's good. You know, smartness can do a heck of a lot, yes, but they do very little out of the box. Right? So when you simply plug one in, you potentially have all this performance and offloads at your disposal. 
But then you suddenly find that there's very few applications that you can just instantly turn on and they get this magical benefit. So it's more of an education point that I wanted to talk about smart nets of what you can do with it, why they're a benefit, but don't oversell or get oversold on it. Well, it's, it's a meaningful investment. That is, you're spending goodly money to buy a smart neck versus, um, well, a dumb neck, I guess, for for lack of a better uh, better term. If that nick is programmable, if that nick can do not just TCP offload, but something fancy, you know, something up at an application layer, you're going to pay a, a good bit for that, not just in the hardware, but then in the ecosystem that can take advantage of that nick. Is that correct, Michael? Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, even when you mentioned TCP offload there, I mean, that was the first round of smart nicks we had. And you actually used to pay a premium for a, a tow card over a standard nick at the time. Right, this is you know back in the I don't know late two thousands, and then we all went down the hypervisor layer and we broke all the TCP offload engines so they didn't work anymore. Everything went to the software layer, and well, there was no point having these so called smart nicks back then. And now we come full circle again, where now we have technology that we can still use virtualization layers, and we can offload you know like OVS or the Open V switch, and put that directly onto the NIC, give you back your CPU cycles, you know, so that your hypervisor can spend its time spinning its wheels running your applications, what it was supposed to be doing. All right. So again, it's it's a big full circle that we come back around to. So what are the primary like what's the market or the use? I mean obviously cloud, right? But outside of that, what are the primary use cases or or what what's the market? The the very first mass adoption of smart NICs was actually by the storage vendors because a lot of these smart NICs have NVMe offloads or NVMe over fabric offloads built into them. So the smart NIC became essentially the storage controller. You put erasure encoding on top of that as well. So suddenly... So as that enterprise, I might have gotten a smart NIC, but only because the vendor put it in there for me. Correct. So that's use case number one, and that was the low-hanging fruit of smart NICs. The cloud, as you say, bare metal cloud provisionings, that type of stuff, that was the second wave of this, which is actually, from a commercial point of view, that's the major competitive or major competitor that we as a vendor have, is a lot of these big cloud providers are building their own, right? So again, that doesn't get to trickle back down to the enterprise eventually, as where the vendor that I work for, what we're doing will trickle down to the enterprise eventually. I think the interesting part about smart NICs is smart NICs are what we've actually been using in our networking appliances for the last two decades. So if you went and bought an application firewall or an application load balancer or some sort of proxy type, you know, some application proxy, depending, it doesn't really matter what it was, SSL intercept. It was always just an Intel x86 motherboard with some memory and a NIC. And the NIC that was on board did the networking acceleration. It did the packet rewrite. It did the load balancing calculations. It was doing binary and ternary cam manipulations and lookups and encapsulations. And the difference between 20 years ago and now is that instead of needing, you know, a custom team to get the NIC and write hand handcrafted drivers to write the packet mode, we now have languages like P4. And we have customers who want, who know that their CPUs are bound lock up. You can't run a CPU any faster. We know that the x86 is clock speed is done. 
thermal envelope can't go any faster. They can't fit any more CPUs into that tiny little transistor. So what they're doing is breaking the functions out. And one of them is the concept of a smart NIC or what I call it is a data processing unit. So the idea is, is that communications between the CPU and the memory or the CPU and the storage or the CPU and the network are all being done in this data processing unit. And the other functions like GPU has got a separate function, the tensor, uh, the TPU, which is the AI processing or the TensorFlow processing unit. And there's a security hardware in some of them. Some of them have these security modules, hardware security modules kind of built into the CPU. And so I see the SmartNIC as being the networking part, right? Does that make sense? Is that how you see it too? You're in that business? Uh, yeah, that's essentially how it goes. So the DPU concept is, is sort of the new marketing term for smart NICs that you'll hmm. see both pretty much interchangeable these days. Now, yes, I mean, you're letting the, the cat out of the bag saying appliances were just a server with a fancy badge on it. You know, coming from a vendor, you're not supposed to tell people that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was I, always I obvious take... when you opened it up, you went, oh, look, there it is, Intel BX440 motherboard. Oh, look, and that's the fancy Nick. Look at that. Oh, look, it's got a Cavium SSL accelerator on it. Wow, there's no surprise whatsoever. Exactly. Yes. So we're still doing that process. As you say, we're putting more and more intelligence into different things. Like we have in the InfiniBand side of the world, you have something called in-networking compute, where you actually turn your switches as part of your, your AI or your HPC data processing. So it's actually crunching some of the data as it's going live through the network. So again, this is just another example of where we keep putting more intelligence in non-traditional spaces. We don't architect everything back to that CPU because as you say, we've hit that envelope. Now we mm. need to treat it as a precious resource and see how we can alleviate that CPU. So we can just work on that really core job that it needs to do. And SmartNix is absolutely Hold on for doing that. Is, is that as a, really as big a deal as you're making that that out to be? And I guess I put it this way: if is the issue power and space constraints in a data center where we really just want to maximize every RU, and so we're going to offload as much stuff off to the smart NIC so that we can keep that x86 chugging along with more workloads of a different type, and it, it really matters that much that we get a big benefit from smart NICs there. Well. To give you a quick stat, for instance, if you want to drive a, a 200 gig Ethernet NIC at wire speed and you're pushing it through that x86 CPU, you're going to burn about eight cores yeah. of that server to maintain that throughput. Eight out of how many? Whatever. If you've got a 64 core, it's, it's eight out of 64. If it's a 16 yeah. core, you're going to burn through eight out of 16. Right. And this is, this is what I mean. So here's another secret. EMC VMAX storage arrays, everybody knows about them. They're like, you know, 10 million for a startup pack. The key, the key magic inside of those is the SmartNIC. It's all Intel motherboards and SmartNICs. And the SmartNICs does all the fiber channel. And mm -hmm. um, all they did was uh, wrote some custom software so the networking didn't lag. You know, fiber channels basically synchronous lossless Ethernet. And they do that by restricting the bandwidth and then clocking it out, right? And all sorts of strange and weird things. They basically broke the network to make fiber channel, the whole architecture, restricted the throughput. That was the idea behind it. And one of the interesting things was that they actually used the NICs to do CRC calculations. So what we're seeing is smart NICs now actually have 
there's certain brands of SmartNICs don't just have ASICs to do data manipulations that form TCP IP packets in Ethernet frames, right? They also do CRC calculations on storage read writes. So if you're using a distributed software storage solution where you're running Linux and some sort of storage system and you're just striping data across 50 servers, say, what actually happens is you can actually use the software, the CPUs on the NIC to calculate the storage rewrite and the storage processing function so that the CPU doesn't have to. Exactly. And that acceleration driving software storage performance, I think, what, 500% to 1,000% higher? Mm-hmm. The thing you, is, you for can... me, though, is that this, this makes sense when you tightly, or it's very clear, I should say, when you tightly couple the hardware and the, the, the OS, right? And that makes you know, good sense. And like, as you've been saying, Greg, it's been happening for 20 years. What's not clear to me is like, it, are we at the point now where you can disaggregate those and that there's support across ESXi, you know, various different hypervisors in various different hardware with various different NICs that go in, in that hardware? That's probably not as clear to me to understand is, is this ready for this commoditized? Yes, is, is it ready Michael's for a, Michael should answer this first and I'll have a go if I if. All right. So, uh, again, talking from the vendor that I work with. Yes, the NIC or the smart NIC or the DPU is a complete computer, as it were. So you think about it as a computer in front of the computer. So it's completely isolated. It has zone outer band management. You get to it, you run your favorite flavor of Linux directly on the card itself. It has its own CPU, has a bunch of uh, ARMs, processors. And from that point on, you can do things like you know, deep packet inspection using hardware offload regexes directly on the card to do that deep packet inspection. But the bottom line, as far as the host concerned, it just sees a NIC, right? It has no visibility to the rest of the, the host, as it were, that's sitting in front of it. So that leads itself down the security track or to the micro-segmentation stuff. Yep. But yes, it's a complete discrete unit. To answer your question, uh, Ken, it's it's early days is one one is the easy answer, and so the fact that whenever we get acceleration hardware in the industry, it takes time for the software to catch up. You can't create the software API and then the hardware arrives. It's the other way around. So, you know, the Intel x86 chipset didn't burst onto the scene fully functional and ready to go. It took thirty years of evolution to get where it is today. But I can point at one thing: the P4 language, which I I'm sure you know about is already a programmable language for defining packet flows. And you can use the P4 language in a Linux. You can use it in a virtual switch. You can use it on a NIC. If you're using P4 and you have a smart NIC, then all of a sudden you've got hardware acceleration for your packet munging, right? And Absolutely. So there's an example of a software abstraction that lets you start making these custom things. So if you wanted to make a custom load balancer that's hardware accelerated, all you've got to do is make a load balancer that produces P4 as an output and then put it in a machine that's got a P4 capable smart NIC and you're in action. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Or maybe the last question is, are you managing these individually if they are, if they have their own? It, it, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Okay. It <laughs> well, it, I don't know about it. Because it, it depends on the ecosystem they've been deployed in, like the Pensando stuff that is a smart NIC with P4 and a ton of offload and ships with a bunch of NFVs you can run on the thing. You manage those centrally. There's a system for it. But 
So, Michael, just to follow up on, you were going to say you do manage them individually? Well, you, you essentially do, yes. I mean, you can have different suites that actually manage the whole fleet on the out-of-band side if you're using a smart nick that has a physical out-of-band management, right? Now, not all of them do, and not all of them can be centrally managed. It, it, it depends on the vendor. Yeah. So, fundamentally, like for the type of things it's going to do, like inevitably it's going to break something. So you're going to want to configure what options you want on or off. So you do have to kind of. Management. So what we're saying is, I think the exam, another example here is that uh, VMware's NSX has announced that it will use SmartNICs in the near future. So if you have a server yeah. and a SmartNIC is installed, then all of a sudden you'll get a hardware accelerated NSX. That makes right. sense to me because you're, you're you're more tightly coupling the OS to the hardware. And, and yes, maybe it's you know different physical server, but you know specific smart NICs on there. But that's right. So that then there's sense. another there's another start there's another extreme where so you've got the P4 idea, and then you've got the NSX idea. We'll just take advantage of the underlying hardware and accelerate if it's there, which is kind of a long-standing model. If you've got a GPU that's got acceleration capabilities, we'll use that. Then there's another one which is led by Pensando and Fungible, which are two startups trying to exploit the Spartanic idea and take it in their own direction. And both of them rely on the use of an SDN controller to do what you intimated, which is I want to have a software-controlled engine for the Spartanics. The problem is that once you've got a software control of the Spartanics, what are you selling? And so Pensando's problem is it says, oh, we can do load balancing. We can do security. We can do anything you want. Just ask us and we'll do that. But that doesn't actually tell me what I, like they're not, the, the product doesn't do a thing, right? It's got a lot of directions yeah. it could go. I work for an automation company, so similar where you, you, if you tell everyone we can do anything, it doesn't help. You have to have like, no, you have to like message, go with the. And in, in fairness to Pensando, I mean, in, you know, their market positioning is partly aimed at customers who do know what they want and they're not asking Pensando to write the thing. They're giving them a, a platform upon which they can write an application themselves that will run on the Pensando system as well. And it kind of ships with a with a showcase of uh, NFVs that they'll they'll do uh, yeah. that will run on it. So that's one direction. And then the other company that's gone ahead is Fungible. And what they've done is done exactly the same thing as Pensando but said we're using it to demonstrate that you can create a software storage system that's faster than anything you've ever seen because we're using our smart next to do all of the storage primitives. So, and they're using that as a specific demonstration of the general case. So the thing about when you start talking about smart next, and as Michael's done, you, you sort of get start talking about the hardware, but you've got to then pull back pretty quickly and start looking about the business, which is what Ken's talking about. And you've got to understand that this is going to be a messy, messy marketplace going forward because it's like, um, GPUs over the last two decades. What did GPUs get used for? Well, when they first came out, they were used by CAD programs to accelerate drawing. And then they came to the consumer market to make pretty pictures so that you could do, uh, you know, by graphic artists to do Photoshop. And then they came to the consumer market so you could watch TV at home in 4K. And mine Bitcoin. Yes. <laughs> in mine. And then later Bitcoin. Um, so, you know, when it comes to SmartNix, the, the evolutionary cycle that I look forward to and, and see where it might be going is yet to play out, if that makes sense. I agree, because as you alluded to before, the first part is get the hardware. Now, each of the SmartNIC or DPU vendors out there have a very, very small set of features that you can use today. 
the software is yet to be written in its entirety. Yes, if you want to do a storage engine, there's plenty of smartness you can choose to do that. If yeah. you want to do IPS, there's a few you can do to do that. But to embrace the full concept of this is a completely programmable, open, it can do whatever you like it to do, that's a, a vision that we're still leading up to. Yeah, yeah. And, and we are seeing things like the service mesh people are starting to write hardware P4 primitives into their eBPF implementation so that they can accelerate using SmartNICs. So you might end up in a situation where if you're using a service mesh and you're building it on Kubernetes and you're going to do it in your private cloud, and then it might automatically just support SmartNICs of a certain type over time. eBPF is probably eBPF and B4 networking parts. But what we don't have is primitives for the other part. Well, guys, why don't we call the show there? Lots and lots of content here. We're into 80 minutes. And Steve Paluca, Justin Seabrook-Rosha, Ken Salenza, Michael Shipp, and uh, Nick Baraglio, thanks to all of you for joining us today, for bringing your ideas. Uh, this has been a fantastic community roundtable discussion. Now, if you're listening to the show and you want to follow any of these gentlemen that were participating in the show today, go to the show notes at packetpushers.net. This is going to be a heavy networking episode, so look for that episode that would have published on the 26th of February and find in the show notes how to follow them, their blogs, their Twitter handles, anything else that they care to share. And I uh, hope you got plenty to chew on on this uh, roundtable discussion. And again, my thanks to all of you that joined. Back to you that are listening, maybe you'd like to be on our next roundtable episode to share your many brilliant thoughts. And if so, just DM me on the Packet Pushers Slack channel. I'm Ethan Banks, or email me, ethan at packetpushers.net, and just let us know, hey, I'd want to be on the next roundtable show. Our team of internet investigators are going to sift through all of the data Mark Zuckerberg keeps about you in his basement. Then we're going to line you up for the next time we have one of these chats. And Mark doesn't keep the data in a creepy way. It's fine. It's fine. Right, right. You can find this and many more of our fine free technical podcasts, along with our community blog, all at packetpushers.net. Follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn. Don't like us on Facebook, whatever you do. And rate us on Apple Podcasts. We'd appreciate that. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.